It's time for Security Now. Steve Gibson is here. We've got a lot planned for you. We'll talk about yet another country joining the growing list of countries prohibiting Google Analytics. What's Google going to do about it? There are some proposals. Uh, we'll also talk about Google's V3 manifest for Chrome. It blocks the blockers. What are you going to do about that? And an inside look at Lockbit, the number one ransom program. They just got hacked. Aww. It's all coming up next on Security Now. Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson. Episode 890, recorded Tuesday, September 27th, 2022. Darknet Politics. This episode of Security Now is brought to you by Grammarly. Get more time in your day with confidence in your work with Grammarly. Go to Grammarly.com slash security now to sign up for a free account. And when you're ready to upgrade to Grammarly Premium, you'll get 20% off just for being a listener. And by SecureWorks. Are you ready for the inevitable cyber threats? SecureWorks detects evolving adversaries and defends against them. With a combination of security analytics and threat intelligence direct from their own counter-threat unit. Visit SecureWorks.com slash twit to get a free trial of Tejas Extended Detection and Response, also known as XDR. And by Drata. Security professionals are undergoing the tedious and arduous task of manually collecting evidence. With Drata, say goodbye to the days of manual evidence collection and hello to automation. All done at Drata speed. Visit drata.com slash twit to get a demo and 10% off implementation. It's time for Security Now, the show where you get really down and dirty with the technology. And, well, not in that way. Dirty. You know what I mean. That's you get really right. into it with this guy right here, Steve Gibson. He is the technology wizard we all look to when it comes to understanding better what's going on in the uh, digital world. Hi, Steve. Hello, Leo. Great to be with you for our last episode of September. Where what happened? Nice, <laughs> so where, quick. It's just so now we're starting into the fourth quarter of of 2022 uh, for episode 890. Um, so a lot of stuff to talk about. It was a busy week uh, in the security world. Uh, we're going to examine uh, Europol's, which is the the sort of the policing force, the enforcement side of the EU. Uh, uh, government, their desire to retain data on non-criminal EU citizens, which is not technically legal. Uh, and we look at the fourth EU nation, speaking of not legal, to declare that the use of Google Analytics is an illegal breach of the GDPR. Uh, we're going to look at the question of whether Teapot has been caught, seems <laughs> like, and... Mozilla says it's no fair that operating systems bundle their own browsers. So here we go again. Meanwhile, Chrome's forthcoming V3 manifest threatens add-on ad blocker extensions. And past Chrome vulnerabilities are leaving embedded browsers vulnerable, which is an aspect of Chrome we'd never talked about before, or Chromium, rather, you know, the, the engine. Uh. Windows 11 actually gets a useful feature no and yeah i know it happened <laughs> no <laughs> you, it, really 
That's amazing. And some U.S. legislation proposes to improve uh, open source software security. We revisit the uh, uh, Iranian-Albanian cyber conflict now that we know how Iran got into Albania's networks. And after one important and interesting bit of listener feedback about multi-factor authentication fatigue and a quick spin-ride update, we're going to look at some new trends in the dark underworld with the leak of another major piece of cybercrime malware. Thus, today's podcast is titled Darknet Politics. Ooh. Very nice. Well, as long as we're going to do that, maybe I should take a break right now and talk about one of my favorite little companies, coincidentally, out of Ukraine. It's mm. Grammarly, and uh, favorite because they have saved me from many a grammatical error. Perhaps I should put it that way. I bet you Grammarly would have said, maybe you want to put that a different way. It's <laughs> That's the beauty of Grammarly. You know, look, I consider myself a good writer. I consider myself a great speller. I use spell check and I use Grammarly because it's nice to have a little help as you're communicating. Grammarly's all-in-one writing tool, is it's all about clear, concise communication. That's what it's all about. So that you can be confident and clear and efficient writing emails and reports and presentations. You could finish your work quickly and confidently with Grammarly knowing, you know, it's spelled right and it makes sense and it's intelligible, it's clear, it's understandable. And what's great about Grammarly is it understands there are different kinds of writing. You know, so it knows the difference between an email and a company report, you know, and it, and, it, and it works appropriately. You can use Grammarly for free. It's free to download. It works where you do. You can even go to the Grammarly page and paste in a paragraph, see what it thinks about it. Uh, I like having Grammarly in my browser, the browser plugin. Uh, so everywhere I'm writing, it, you know, whether it's uh, Google Docs or, uh, you know, I use, I use uh, the browser for a lot of work. It's there watching. It's it's so easy to make mistakes. Uh, you know, you're sitting in Gmail, writing an email. It's an important email. So easy to make mistakes. Send, press send, and then go. Oh, did I? Yes, I did. The free version of Grammarly, the free one, offers comprehensive spelling, grammar, and punctuation suggestions. So it's instantly proofreading and providing suggestions as you write. So your writing always comes across as professional, mistake free. And when you hit the send button, you know, hey, it's it's okay. It's done. Now, I think, and I bought Grammarly Premium because that also has all of the above, but a clarity-focused sentence rewrite engine that says, you know, that sentence was maybe a little long, a little convoluted. It might be easier to understand if you wrote it this way. And I don't always take its suggestions, but it's really valuable to see how somebody else might interpret a sentence so that I can make my writing clear. Because that's the whole point, right? I'm not trying to be creative here. I'm not James Joyce. I'm trying to write something that communicates. Uh, it makes it easier to get through work email, get back to the important projects, get an instant take on how your message comes across. They've got a tone detector. This is free also, by the way. And Lisa uses this because she's the CEO. She's the boss. She's in a hurry. So her emails are usually one sentence, very quick. Sometimes Grammarly say, you know, you might want to soften the tone on that so people don't take it the wrong way. And I know that Lisa really appreciates that because she's not trying to sound brusque. But sometimes because she's in a hurry, it does. Grammarly helps her make it sound better. You'll always make the right impression with Grammarly. And because they're in Ukraine, 
I really like paying for Grammarly Pro because I, I want to support them doing uh, great work in a very tough world. There's another reason I love Grammarly, which no one else is going to appreciate, but their AI uses Lisp. And I'm <laughs> it's one of the best known uses of Lisp, but I'm a fan of that as well. Get more time in your day with confidence in your work with Grammarly. Go to Grammarly.com slash security now. Please do use that so they know you heard it here. You can sign up for a free account when you're ready to upgrade because you did that, Grammarly.com slash security now, you'll get 20% off. Because you listen to the show, 20% off, G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y, Grammarly.com slash security now. It's a really great tool. Uh, and, it, you know, I'm one of those guys, oh, I have perfect grammar. I, uh, uh. Uh, it's no shame to use it. And it's so helpful. I have no problem anymore. I just feel like this is what I need. And I'm always I'm always surprised when you remind us that it's from Ukraine. Yeah, because because to do this, you I mean you you can't be working through an English Ukrainian translator. Oh no no no! I mean, you have to know you have to the really, language well. Really, really right. know the target language. Well, I think you know I don't know. I should look into this, but I think that they were AI experts first, and really it's about the training. So Grammarly does come in other languages. It's about the training. Uh, material right and uh and it's really kind of clever what they've done um, wow yeah it's really wow. it's a they need to be aeiou experts <laughs> back to the picture of the week mr gibson so this one was just one i've had in the queue for a while it shows a fishing line descending f down into the frame from off frame uh at the end of it is a hook with a worm stuck there uh and we've got two fish that are sort of eyeing this looking like easy prey. And the, the the smaller one of the two is saying, be careful. It could be an online scam. Yikes. And <laughs> it's a fishing yes, scam. It's a fishing scam. Yeah. So, <laughs> okay. So <clears throat> um, an interesting conundrum caught my eye last week. The European data protection supervisor who will just say edps for short european data protection supervisor which is it's the european union's independent supervisory authority chartered with monitoring european institutions and bodies to assure that they respect citizens rights to privacy and obey their own data protection rules the this edps filed a lawsuit with the European Court of Justice against the European Union and Europol. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, Europol is the law enforcement or policing division. So going back a few months to January of this year, EDPS, that supervisory agency, published the results of a three-year investigation. They said that they had found that Europol this law enforcement agency of the EU had secretly collected, secretly collected large troves of personal information on EU citizens dating back years, even if those persons had not committed any crimes or were under any investigation of any kind. In other words, data collection without cause or oversight, which is a violation of privacy laws in Europe. So the EDPS used its regular regulatory powers, this is after it learned of this back in January, to order Europol to filter its database 
deleting any and all information they had on European Union citizens that had not committed any crimes over the past six months. It ordered Europol to scrub this database, all of its databases, by January of 2023. Okay, so now the reason for the lawsuit, which was filed just last week, was that the EDPS said that EU lawmakers went behind its back and passed new legislation in June to allow Europol to retroactively keep all of its previously collected information. In reaction to that action in June, the EDPS said it had strong doubts as to the legality of this retroactive authorization. And now the EDPS says that this new development actively subverts its independence and authority and wants the court to invalidate the new legal amendments and stay its original decision. Because of this legislative and enforcement infighting, the EDPS legislation and lawsuit are highly controversial topics among law enforcement officials. In an official response in January, defending its massive data collection, Europol said, and they're probably right about this, that deleting this data will, quote, impact its ability to analyze complex and large data sets at the request of EU law enforcement and that it would hinder the EU's ability to detect and respond to threats such as terrorism, cybercrime, international drug trafficking, and of course, you know what's coming next, child abuse and others, many of which involve transnational investigations at a very large scale. And as I said, they're arguably correct in that assumption. I mean, the problem is, of course, abuse of this massive collection and and data set. So the reason these are difficult problems is that both sides of the dispute can be correct from each from their own perspective. 21st century crime fighting will be enhanced by massive machine learning data sets used for data analysis. But it's also true that enormous databases of sensitive and personally identifiable information need, at the very least, robust safeguards. And there's no better safeguard than the deletion of all such data for non-criminal citizens. So, anyway, I just thought it was interesting that, you know, they're basically fighting with themselves over what it is that they should do. You know, even with governments being well-intentioned, we'll remember our friend Bert Hubert, who resigned from his posting in the Netherlands because a branch of his government was trying to push to or past the limits of the safeguards and boundaries that had previously put in place for a reason. So, I am, um, you know, so they said, if you haven't committed a crime in the last six months, no information about you. But what about a fingerprint database or a DNA database? What if you committed a, uh, a crime two years ago? And we've got your fingerprints on record. Right. And you're saying, no, you're not allowed to have any DNA. You're not allowed to have any fingerprints. Uh, if I haven't committed yeah, I have in the last to, six months, I think you there's have a reason to imagine, have an You have to imagine that post, that, that, that criminals who have been convicted are permanently in a system and not subject to okay. that six months uh, d- deletion. But then it should say, it, nobody who's ever been convicted of a crime... Or, right. I mean, if if you've never been convicted of a crime, you shouldn't be in there. I agree with that. Uh, that absolutely, I agree with. But it says of six months for the last six months. It does, which implies yep. that if you did it seven months ago, oh no, you still got to delete it. 
And I don't. I think that actually does uh, hinder police work. Uh, unreasonable. Yeah, I agree. So I mean, there is, and and so uh, again, it's one of these dilemmas where we can do anything we want. We just have to decide what we want to do, and. There are, you know, opposing forces that have arguments in in both directions. Yeah, I understand. Um, privacy is yeah. great, but um, yeah, maybe that's the rule. If you if you haven't committed a serious, maybe it should be a serious crime, not a petty theft, but a serious misdemeanor or felony, then we have the right to keep your fingerprints and DNA for as long as we want. Right? Yeah. Well, and and I liked I, I, a couple of weeks ago uh, the way I phrased this about privacy and encryption was that if you had absolute privacy, then that would allow individuals to absolutely escape responsibility. And so it's it's the, you know, like the system we have in the U.S. with a search warrant is, is conditional privacy. We're, we're you know, we're, we're protected against illegal search and seizure, as the phrase goes. But if you convince a judge that there is reason, no reason to suspect that that the interests of the people will be served by by incrementally breaching some privacy, you know, a search warrant, then it can be granted, and in that instance, uh, within the limits of that warrant, an, an individual's privacy, which is not absolute, is then is re- uh, removed for for the sake of enforcement. Yeah. Anyway, while we're in the neighborhood, Denmark has become the fourth EU member, joining Austria, France, and Italy, to rule that the use of Google Analytics is illegal. In Denmark, the Danish Data Protection Agency ruled this week, actually it was last week, that the use of Google Analytics inside the country is not compliant with the GDPR. The agency told local companies to either adjust the tool for increased privacy, and actually there are no useful adjustments, as we'll see in a second, uh, and, uh, and or stop using it. At the beginning of an explanation published last Wednesday. It said, quote, in January 2022, the uh, the Austrian Data Protection Authority issued a decision on the use of Google Analytics by an Austrian organization. So that was January of this year. Since then, the Austrian Data Protection Authority has issued another decision on the use of the tool, and several decisions have also been issued by the French Data Protection Authority. Most recently, in June... The Italian Data Protection Authority issued a decision on the use of the tool, the tool meaning Google Analytics. In all of these cases, the supervisory authorities found that the use of Google Analytics under the given circumstances was unlawful. The senior legal advisor at the Danish Data Protection Agency said, quote, the GDPR is made to protect the privacy of European citizens. This means, among other things, that you should be able to visit a website without your data ending up in the wrong hands. We've carefully reviewed the possible settings of Google Analytics and have come to the conclusion that you cannot use the tool in its current form without implementing supplementary measures. Since the decisions by our European colleagues, we have looked into the tool 
and the specific settings available to you when you intend to use Google Analytics. This has been particularly relevant as Google, following the first Austrian decision, has begun to provide additional settings in relation to what data can be collected by the tool. However, our conclusion is that the tool still cannot, without more, be used lawfully. Okay, so, you know, organizations in Denmark that employ Google Analytics, which is on so many websites. Um, Including ours, I might you, add. Do, does this yeah. mean I can't have any more Denmark listeners? Yeah. Um, okay, so that's really a question, right? Is like like the, the, the fact that the GDPR technically reaches us, right? And so, you know, we have to be compliant if EU citizens come to websites in the U.S. So anyway, its use is widespread. Uh, and organizations in Denmark, after this order, must assess whether their possible continued use of the tool takes place in compliance with data protection law. And the the, the ruling here says it can't. Uh, and if it's not the case that they can be compliant, the organization must must either bring its use of the tool into compliance or, if necessary, discontinue using the tool. So there are now four countries which have all said it's not possible for the tool to be used in compliance regardless of its settings. The senior legal advisor said, A very important task for the Danish Data Protection Agency is to give guidance to citizens about their rights and to give guidance to Danish organizations in how they comply with data protection law. As is the case with data protection law, we at the Danish Data Protection Agency are neutral to technology and therefore have no interest in either approving or banning certain products. We are not at all empowered to do so. Following the decisions of our European colleagues, however, we've experienced a great demand for guidance in relation to specifically Google Analytics, and we have therefore made an effort to look into this specific tool more closely. Okay, so the message from the Danish, the Danish Data Protection Agency is that any enterprise's websites that are within Danish jurisdiction or, again, actually within the reach of the EU's GDPR, which use Google Analytics, must put in place a plan to bring their use into compliance by implementing supplementary measures. Uh, we'll get to that in one second. And they said, if it is not possible to implement effective supplementary measures... You must stop using the tool and, if necessary, find another tool that can provide web analytics and allows for compliance with data protection law. Boy, Google must be really getting some headaches with all this. For example, they said, by not transferring personal data about visitors to unsafe third countries. Okay, so what are these supplementary measures that could be taken? Well, it turns out that France... The second of the four EU countries to object to Google's analytics invested some technical resources to provide a document which answers the question. The document, dated July 20th of this year, a little over two months ago, is titled Google Analytics and Data Transfers, How to Make Your Analytics Tool Compliant with the GDPR. Okay, so the French document explains. It says... The Court of Justice of the European Union, CJEU, in its ruling 16 July 2020, 
invalidated the Privacy Shield, a mechanism that provided a framework for transfers of personal data between the European Union and the United States. The U.S. legislation does not offer sufficient guarantees in the face of the risk of access by the authorities, particularly intelligence services, to the personal data of European residents. Following these formal notices, many actors have sought to identify the technical settings and measures that can allow to maintain the use of Google Analytics while respecting the privacy of Internet users. However, simply changing the processing settings of the IP address is not sufficient to meet the requirements of the CJEU, especially as these continue to be transferred to the U.S., Another idea often put forward is the use of encryption of the identifier generated by Google Analytics or replacing it with an identifier generated by the site operator. However, in practice, this provides little to no additional guarantee against possible re-identification of data subjects, mainly due to the persistent processing of the IP address by Google. The fundamental problem that prevents these measures from addressing the issue of access of data by non-European authorities is that of direct contact via an HTTPS connection between the individuals. Now, they call it a terminal, but that, you know, we know that's PC and browser or device and browser, the individual's terminal and servers managed by Google. The resulting requests allow these servers to obtain the IP address of the Internet user, as well as a lot of information about his terminal. This information may realistically allow the user to be re-identified and consequently to access his or her browsing on all sites using Google Analytics. Of course, this is 100% true, 100% technically accurate. Same thing happens when you do a Google search, but okay. Yeah, yeah. They said only solutions allowing to break this contact between the terminal and the server can address the issue. So they should ban Google. (laughs) Seriously. Well, yeah. Yeah. If the same. So I don't understand. If the same thing happens when I do a Google search and you don't want it to happen when I with analytics, well, just ban Google. Let's see what happens then. (laughs) So, okay, so beyond the case of Google Analytics, they said this type of solution could also make it possible to reconcile the use of other analytics tools with the GDPR rules on data transfer. Okay, so that all makes sense. The issue is that the user's machine and web browser, or terminal as they say here, is posting its analytics directly to a Google domain. So its incoming IP address is always known to Google. To resolve this... The French recommendations, and this is in this formal document that they published, are that a proxy server would be a possible solution. They say, in view of the criteria mentioned above, one possible solution is the use of a proxy server to avoid any direct contact between the Internet user's terminal and the servers of the analytics tool, in this case, Google. However, it must be ensured that this server fulfills a set of criteria in order to be able to consider that this additional measure is in line with what is presented by the EDPB, whoever they are, in in his recommendations of 18 June 2021. Indeed, such a process would correspond to the use case of pseudonymization 
Bef- uh, yeah, pseudonymization before court before data export. They said, as stated in these recommendations, such an export is only possible if the controller has established through a thorough analysis that the pseudonymized personal data cannot be attributed to an identified or identifiable individual, even if cross-checked with other information. It's therefore necessary, beyond the simple presence of a request from the user's terminal to the servers of the analytics tool, to ensure that all of the information transmitted does not in any way allow the person to be re-identified, even when considering the considerable means available to the authorities likely to carry out such re-identification. So, in other words, they're, they're talking about really being serious about erecting a barrier, a, a, a between the EU citizens and anyone downstream of this barrier. So, and they specify what is entailed. They said the server carrying out the proxification must therefore implement a set of measures to limit the data transferred. The CNIL, which is the group that created this document, considers in principle the following is necessary. The absence of transfer of the IP address to the servers of the analytics tool. If a location is transmitted to the servers of the measurement tool, it must be carried out by the proxy server, and the level of precision must ensure that this information does not allow the person to be re-identified, for example, by using a geographical mesh ensuring a minimum number of Internet users per cell. So they're just giving some some samples. or And the replacement of the user identifier by the proxy server to ensure effective pseudonymization, the algorithm performing the replacement should ensure a sufficient level of collision, i.e. a sufficient probability that two different identifiers will give an identical result after hash. Okay, now now we start to have a problem because if you do this, then you're breaking the point of analytics, which is to identify, you know, the the um, the activity of the site. Although you are you are you know keeping the the specific user who's visiting the site secret, so you are getting you know an, uh, pseudonymized per user uh, data still. Also, they specified the removal of referrer information from the site. Um, that's a problem for analytics because analytics wants to know where you are, you know, like where you are on the site, which is what the referrer information uh, in the query in the query header provides. Also, the removal of any parameters contained in the collected URLs, that is, you know, URL tails, UTMs, also URL parameters, uh, which may uh, also cause a leakage of information. Also, reprocessing of information they said that can be used to generate a fingerprint such as user agents to remove the rarest configurations that can lead to re-identification so make those all look the same the absence of collection of cross-site or lasting identifiers you know a crm id or any sort of a unique id and the deletion of any other data that could lead to re-identification in other words it is a daunting task um they go on to say the proxy server 
must also be hosted in conditions that ensure that the data it processes will not be transferred outside the European Union to a country that does not provide a level of protection substantially equivalent to that provided within the European economic area. So, wow. Uh, More and more, what we're seeing here is kind of the way they would like the Internet to be in the EU coming into a head-to-head collision with the current operation of the Internet and, you know, asking for huge changes. Establishing a proxy, um, you know, would be a lot to ask for the typical website that just wants to use analytics because it was, you know, two lines of JavaScript code, yeah. and they and they got all this amazing information for free. Yeah, we want to know um, how many people visit our site. I, I, yeah, and, and which pages and what search yeah. terms brought them there, you know, and all this cool stuff. Um, the Google Analytics, a Google Analytics proxying service could be set up somewhere in the EU. Then EU websites would point their Google Analytics javascript to that services domain instead of to analytics.google.com in that way the visitors to any of these gdpr compliant google analytics using websites would have their browsers queried the proxy on their behalf since the proxy would be terminating their tls connections it would be able to strip identifying information from the query, make any changes it wanted to, insert randomization to confuse fingerprinters, and so on. So, you know, we have another example here of the growing tension between privacy and commerce. And uh, what they're asking for is feasible, but boy, you know, are they going to enforce it? Are they going to require it? Um, and, and it would require setting up a local proxy within within the jurisdiction of any country or countries that wanted to enforce this level of anonymization through something like Google Analytics and route all the queries through it before it then goes to Google for their uh, data correction. And who, or, who runs the proxy and sees the information on the proxy? Well, so that so th- they're like, saying that like a data that would grab to, that that would need to be in the EU, and yeah, it's going to be another you know centralization. Let's add a third eyeball to watch in this and see what but, happens. But their but their point, of course, is that it's not leaving the U. It's not leaving the right. EU for the U.S. And right. so you know, it is a solution to the problem. But boy, it's a it's a it's a heavy lift in order to get you know in order to change the operation of something which has been in place already for what leo like 15 years yeah, or and it's going to slow years? it down I mean, dramatically yeah um we don't get you know we, we when you use google analytics i don't get any individual information about visitors at all right you you don't but google does presumption that's is that their, google that's does their and complaint. does something with it yeah, yeah. um by the way, if I were to run a local analytics program, I would get all of that information. I'd get all the IP addresses and everything. I this just seems so wrongheaded to me. I don't understand. I know. I understand what they're what they want. I don't understand how they think this is going to get them there. Yeah. Well, and again, it's like now we have to agree to cookies wherever we go. Thank you very much. Oh yeah, that's GDPR. really worked. Oh boy, has yeah. that solved that problem? <laughs>
<laughs> okay. In last week's network breach review, we were just talking about the Uber and Rockstar game breaches and the belief that both quite public intrusions were perpetrated by the same teenager. So I just wanted to note for the record that last Thursday, the city of London police detained a 17-year-old from Oxfordshire on (laughs) hacking-related charges. And it ain't his first rodeo. (laughs) (laughs) While UK officials have not released the suspect's name or other details about his arrest, the teen is widely suspected of being Teapot a member of the Lapsus gang who recently breached Uber and Rockstar Games. And I would love to know how this kid was tracked down. As I mentioned when we talked about this before, he seemed to be extremely braggadocious about these breaches. And the more one struts around crowing, the more clues you inadvertently leave behind. Well, and also, this is the same kid that already has been arrested for the Microsoft hack, the earlier lapsus hack. That's -hmm. what they're saying. So this kid, not only is he braggadocious... He's not learning a lesson. It's like, he's currently on parole for that. Oh, goodness. Or a probation, I think, not parole. Probation, yeah. probation for that. It's only probably the fact that he's a minor that is saving him at this point. That's right, that's right. Well, you know, I wonder if Lapsus is a gang felon- or just this guy, <laughs> frankly. This yeah, they're felonies. Felony, yeah. felony cyber intrusion. Yeah. So, and he's wow. using, he's a, you know, in every case he's used uh, social engineering. It's, you know, posing as somebody and, yep. you know, give me your two-factor kind of thing. Okay. Okay, so let's take a break, and then we're going to talk about Mozilla saying it's no fair. It's no fair. It's no fair. It's not fair, Mark. Um, okay, moving moving right along. I'm still kind of trying to figure out what we're going to do at Twit uh, about the these these GDPR things because we uh, that's now what four or five countries that won't yeah. allow analytics. Everybody who is asked to rule on it rules yeah. the way they have to, which yeah. is it is a breach of the it GDPR. Requires- and it's and it's I think mostly because GDPR considers IP addresses IIP, right? That that's a PII rather personally identifiable information. Yes, but and that we know that that does that is, that IP addresses tend to be relatively static. But they're also going way further, talking about you know unique tokens and and referrer headers. Yeah. And I mean they're they're getting aggressive. I mean this is France saying ooh la la. Uh. Okay. Uh, oh, I, you said I, I wanted to take a break. It's time for our word from SecureWorks. Perfect timing, by the way. Uh, SecureWorks is a leader in cybersecurity, building solutions for security experts by security experts. SecureWorks offers superior threat detection and rapid incident response, all while making sure customers are never locked into a single vendor. SecureWorks offers an open, extended detection and response platform, Tagus XDR. Why? If you listen to the show, you know why. In 2022, cybercrime this year will cost the world $7 trillion 
In a few years, by 2025, $10.5 trillion. In 2021, ransomware totaled $20 billion in damages. Attacks occurred every 11 seconds. They estimate by 2031, 10 years later, ransomware will cost more than 10 times more, $265 billion a year. And there'll be a ransomware strike every two seconds. I think they're actually uh, coming in low, to be honest. How do you make sure your organization is not the next victim? I think it's worse than that, right? The answer is SecureWorks Tages XDR. You need it. SecureWorks Tages provides superior detection, identifying over 470 billion security events per day, prioritizing the true positive alerts, eliminating alert noise, and allowing organizations to focus on the real threat. In addition, Tages offers unmatched response with automated response actions to eliminate threats before damage is ever done. Whether your organization has a limited IT staff and budget or you run a well-funded, fully-staffed security operations center, you'll get customized support. With SecureWorks Tagus Managed XDR, you can easily leverage SecureWorks experts to investigate and respond to threats on your behalf so that you can cut dwell times, decrease operational burden, reduce cost. And with 24-7 by 365 coverage, whether you experience a Christmas Day outage or half your team is out sick, uh, you can trust that SecureWorks is behind you. Many companies are facing a shortage, of course, these days of security talent. Hiring and retention are much harder than ever. SecureWorks customizes the approach and the coverage level you get in order to give you exactly what you need. Bottom line, SecureWorks acts as an extension of your security team on day one, alleviating cybersecurity talent gaps. What happens if you've already found an intruder in your system? Don't worry. I want you to write down this number, 1-800-BREACHED. That number will connect you with the SecureWorks Emergency Incident Response Team. They can provide you with immediate assistance 24-7 in responding to and remediating a possible cyber incident or data breach. At SecureWorks, you'll learn more about the ways today's threat environment is evolving and the risks it can present to your organization. They've got case studies. They've got reports from their counter-threat unit and more. Visit SecureWorks.com slash twit to get a free trial of Tagus XDR. That's SecureWorks.com slash twit. SecureWorks, defending every corner of cyberspace. All right, Steve, on with the show. Oh, cyberspace. let me turn on your microphone as he defends every corner of, <laughs> of cyberspace. <laughs> and that's what I said. Back to our little corner of cyberspace. Yes. <laughs> so Mozilla says no fair. They recently published a 66-page Sour Grapes document complaining that they don't own any major platform, whereas Google, Apple, Meta, Amazon, and Microsoft each do, and that each of those major players bundles their respective browsers with their operating systems and quite naturally sets them as the operating system default in the home screen or dock. And that as a result, for most people, this placement is sufficient and they will never see or pursue the extra steps necessary, as Mozilla says, to discover alternatives. You know, one of my favorite observations, the tyranny of the default. So this paper is titled Five Walled Gardens, Why Browsers Are Essential to the Internet and How Operating Systems Are Holding Them Back. And they might have titled the document Why Firefox is Losing Market Share and It's No Fair. Now, 
I know that doesn't make me seem very sympathetic. I actually am. I love Firefox. You and I, Leo, talk about it all the time. Using uh, it right now. I've, yep. Yep. I've been a Firefox user as my primary browser on every one of my machines for decades. Firefox is the default registered URL handler on every one of my PCs. If a link is clicked, Firefox receives it. What I am aggrieved by is the constant annoyance of the other non-Firefox browsers, which seeing that they are not the chosen one, use every opportunity to suggest that my browsing experience could be greatly enhanced if I were using them to view that page. So Mozilla's 66-page paper amounts to them making a truly compelling case. I mean, it, it, there's no question that this is going on. We know it is. A compelling case for exactly how screwed they are going forward. They blame the OS vendors for putting their own self-interest first. You know, welcome to America. Uh, it's unclear to me what this is actually about. Uh, is this a prelude to another browser wars antitrust lawsuit? I hope not. But some of the language in the 66-page complaint, which is, you know, what it actually literally is, is a complaint does appear to be paving the ground for something. And they sort of made an offhand reference to, you know, wouldn't it be all better if we could come to an agreement sort of thing? <laughs> so, you know, Google is currently funding Mozilla to the tune of $450 million per year in return for Firefox defaulting to Google as its search engine. So there's the tyranny of the default for you again, this time, this time working in Firefox's favor. On December 27th of 2011, so 11 years ago, Wired Magazine published Why Google Continues to Fund Firefox. And their subhead was, Google has its own web browser, so why is the company renewing its revenue deal with Mozilla? The answer is simple. They write, Google makes money by putting eyeballs in front of ads, and almost a quarter of the web's eyeballs use Firefox. Now, I was sad to read that 11 years ago, because that's decidedly no longer the case. The 2022 market share for the top four browsers is Google Chrome, obviously in first place, at 77.03%. Safari in second place at 8.87%. Mozilla Firefox holding the third place at 7.69%. And to me, surprising, Microsoft Edge in fourth place at only 5.83%. I think it's clear that Safari's Edge is thanks to the gazillion iPhones and iPads. Since the Mac OS, while it's there, it would not be making nearly as huge a dent. You know, but bless its little digital heart, Firefox is hanging in there at number three. Still, you know, nicely and somewhat amazingly edging out Edge by nearly two percentage points. But it's unclear what Firefox's future is. You know, they laid off, what was it, 25% of their workforce a year ago. And their deal with Google, I think, is up for something in 2023 is when this, I think it was a three-year deal uh, for Firefox and Mozilla. So, 
You know, people have said, oh, it's, it behooves Google to keep Firefox alive because it keeps them from seeming like a, a, a monopolistic uh, entity for antitrust purposes. Who knows? But anyway, I just thought I'd put a, a note about the 66-page, you know, boo-hoo note from, you know, Mozilla. It's like, yeah, sorry, uh, you don't have an operating system platform of your own, you, you know. And, Leo, you and I know how bad a monoculture is. You know, yeah. the idea that everybody is using the same singular Chromium engine is bad because it means what, those mistakes are universal when they are found. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Plus, well, I just want competition. I want a variety. Yeah, uh, it's good. You know, Safari's doing all right, uh, but WebKit is in its way, like Chromium, kind of a dominant right. uh, engine. Uh, I need I need Mozilla to succeed. We may have yeah, to just we, start raising money for them or something if if yeah. Google pulls out. Yeah. So, back in November of 2020. Google announced what they called Manifest V3 for Chromium and Chrome, and we talked about it at the time. It'll, as I talk, as I get into this, some of our listeners will go, "Oh yeah, I remember." The concern back then was the deleterious effect that it would have on ad blockers. That is this V3 manifest, which you know comes as no surprise to Google critics. Uh, so, as you may recall, when we were talking about this before, Google is changing the way. Chrome's extensions function. Rather than allowing individual extensions to receive, examine, and either drop, modify, or forward each of the browser's outgoing requests, it has, as has always been allowed until now, under Manifest V3, there's a new API called Declarative Net Request. And it operates sort of the way its name suggests if you're into APIs. Uh, that is, it's declarative rather than... Uh, uh, what's the reverse of declarative? I'm blanking on the word. Imperative? Uh, uh, yeah, imperative. Uh, okay, so this declarative net request uh, allows extensions um, uh, to modify and block network requests in what Google calls a privacy-preserving and performant way. Implicit. Okay. What the, uh, no, I'll keep, I'll keep uh, It actually is. They did say performant. So yeah. uh, what this actually means is that Google remains in control. What occurs under Manifest V3, which, by the way, is on its way rolling out, is... Rather than intercepting a request and modifying it procedurally, that was the word I was looking for, instead ah, of declarative, procedural, procedural mod modifying it procedurally, the extension registers with Chrome, asking it to evaluate and modify requests, like, like matching requests, on its behalf. The extension declares a set of rules, and we're not sure how many there may be, but Ad blockers need a gazillion. If you've ever seen the the rule set on an ad blocker, it just you know it makes you just eyes water. So the extension declares a set of rules, patterns to match requests, and actions to perform when matched. The browser engine, 
Chromium then modifies network requests as defined by these rules. So it's you can see it's a completely different way of operating, and it's got the ad blocker extensions a little nervous. Google claims that, quote, using this declarative approach dramatically reduces the need for persistent host permissions. And I don't and they're not wrong. I mean, this is this is a, a, an elegant way of solving the problem, but it definitely eliminates control from extensions that they have historically had. But Chrome is also tightening down on and limiting the power of its extensions, and Google Cynics are suggesting that it's a move to protect its advertising revenue. Of course they are. So it's for this reason that the Vivaldi browser's lead developer took the time to post last Friday that come hell or high water, those are my words, not his, Vivaldi's ad blocking would continue to be effective even in the face of Manifest 3. In his post on Friday, Julian wrote, The move to Manifest V3 makes it more difficult to run content blockers and privacy extensions in Chrome. While some users may not notice a difference, users who use multiple extensions or add custom filter lists may run into artificial limitations set by Google. He says, perhaps wise to move away from Chrome? He says, as Vivaldi is built on the Chromium code, how we tackle the API change depends on how Google implements the restriction. The assurance is, whatever restrictions Google adds, in the end, we'll look into removing them. He he finished, our mission will always be to ensure that you have the choice. So Julian notes that the entire existing V2 API, I'm sorry, yeah, the existing V2 API continues to be present for Chrome's enterprise users. So that means that it's only the consumer who is being hit with this restriction and that all of the existing code remains accessible somewhere. So it's going to be interesting to watch this one shake out. While Firefox, as I've said, is my default URL handler, I do often use Chrome for ad hoc internet research. You know, I, I edit this podcast. You know, the, this the the show notes that that were that's in front of us are done in 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 Google Docs every week, um, and things have grown so horrendous on the net that I could not live without an effective ad blocker any longer. If Chrome really does become the, an advertising browser and makes the ability to suppress the insanity that too many web pages have become, you know, they might drive a move back to Firefox. So I'm with you, and I use Gore Hill's uBlock Origin, just like you. Yep. Um, and, I, you know, by the way, it has a built-in cookie banner blocker, among other things. It's one of the annoyances features. Um, but... Do you think there's a legitimate security reason for Google to insist on Manifest V3? In yes. other words, that web that web content API is potentially insecure. It's potentially a problem, right? Yes. Uh, it's known as the Web Request API. And, I mean, it literally is a – it is a call each um, – call each extension in turn – and let them each look at it, modify it, 
drop it or forward it. So, I mean, the, 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 these extensions, as they are now, are in the pipeline. And it's, it's, so there is, this is why they use the word performant. Right. Um, because if, if, if an extension takes a long time to think about one of these queries that's been handed to it, the whole process slows down. So what Google is doing is Google is, is trying to compromise here. I mean, and it, it, it's, it's a legitimate you know, attempt to compromise. They're saying we're we're going to build a screaming fast, um, uh, you know, pattern matching engine. You put the matches in you want, and uh, you know it'll be a big regex machine. You 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 put the regular expressions in that you want matched. Specify the the changes you want made. We'll do them for you. So what that does is, of course, it completely eliminates this pipeline, uh, the, 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 this per extension processing pipeline, which both gives us, the, us, Google, the users, everybody, more security and potentially sub- substantially greater speed because Google is saying we're, we're going to, you know, who knows what they're going to do. They, 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 they might. At launch time, when all the extensions are in place and have registered their list of red of, of regex work, Google could compile it in like in, into some screaming fast you know blob that, that that just you know queries go in and the results immediately come out the other end. So they can't do that now with, with the V two architecture. They need to move to this V three model and. You know, once again, it's going to be a trade-off. Extensions are going to lose some power. Yeah, I wish we could find some sort of compromise. And I wish it didn't look so much like Google wanted to preserve their ad business. I know. And, you know, Leo, that, 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 that keeps coming up. The idea, unfortunately, that the, the, the entity offering a browser, which is the thing that displays ads is the revenue for that entity i mean it it creates like it's a built-in yeah. conflict of interest yeah. of course same same thing when youtube search results top the google search results you know yeah the, uh, you can go on and on google self deals all the time yeah um, it, <sighs> yeah okay so here's one that had never occurred to me before while we're on the topic of chrome A group known as Newman, N-U-M-E-N, Cyber Labs, have published extensive write-ups on a pair of older and long-since-fixed Chrome vulnerabilities, CVE-2021-38003 and 2022-1364. Both were Chrome Zero Days, patched in October 2021, and April of 2022, respectively. And either one could be used at the time for remote code execution attacks against Chrome users. What's interesting and chilling about Newman's observation is that they warn that even though these two security flaws have been patched in the main Chrome, you know, Chromium Core and Chrome browser, the patch gap that exists in software that uses Chrome's WebKit engine as their built-in browser means that many mobile apps are still vulnerable to this, including, and they use this as an example, the most recent release of Skype, 
which is subject to a zero-day remote code execution flaw because it uses the Chromium core and has not been patched, even though Chromium was the, 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 the most recent one in April and the previous one in October of last year. I thought that was a fascinating observation and one, as I said, we've never considered. I often talk glowingly about how the Chromium guys jump on a report of a new zero day and often push out an update only a day or two later. But applications that incorporate Chrome's WebKit engine, Chromium, are taking a snapshot of the engine and may be far more lackadaisical about keeping that engine snapshot up to date. After all, it's working. Why bother with it? Well, why indeed? You know, after all, the Chromium engine, as we know, is truly a work-in-progress moving target. But that's anathema to projects that want to build from essentially static libraries. I would be willing to bet that very few of them are pushing out new release builds of their application because one of their component dependencies, in this case Chromium, was updated. And as we know, those Chromium updates are happening all the time. So to me, it seems unlikely in the, in the extreme that apps are being that responsible. So any and all of such applications, and they again, they showed on the screen Skype being taken over, might well be inheriting and existing with Chrome's historical vulnerabilities. This, again, is another good reason for Google never to talk about them, no matter how old they are. But unfortunately, these Newman guys did a complete takedown of both of these. So any app that is using an unupdated Chromium now who sees what Newman Cyber Labs has published can start poking at any embedded browser engines to see if they're able to take the, the, the app over remotely. So it's a, it's a chilling thing that we never really talked about, but it's a consequence of, you know, a browser engine being so complex, being inherently a moving target, Yet we get this, as they called it, the patch gap between when the library was taken and when it was le- what, what version they're using and when it was built into their app. And are they even bothering? Do they even care? Yikes. Okay. We all know that I'm not a big fan of Windows 11. That's primarily because of the lies we were told about its hardware system requirements from the beginning, which never made a lick of engineering sense and which, sure enough, were eventually acknowledged to be untrue. I remember <laughs> Paul and Mary Jo saying, oh, yeah, 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 that's, that, that's, you know, that's not true. Although I'm going to add that last okay. week we started talking about a new feature that's rolling out in 22H2 of Windows 11 that does perhaps explain 8th generation Intel and uh, T- TPM uh, 2.0. And it okay. has to do with a virtualization, and I can't remember the exact details. But it, it, it perhaps then does make sense that they knew this was coming as a security update, and they wanted to make sure it was supported, uh, and that if you were using Windows 11... And they 11, didn't want to drop... The, they, they, they didn't want to tell anybody subsequ- yet. 
Well, and, and they didn't want to. They they didn't want to allow a subsequent update to Windows 11 to suddenly say, "Oh, we're sorry. Yes, you can't you can't have the Windows 11 update because you know your chip is too old." Yeah, let me look at the notes from um, last week because you deserve the uh, the info anyway as best as I can interpret it. Um, there is a hint at why Microsoft chose eighth gen as the dividing line. A year ago, except, what was that hint? <laughs> they didn't put it in the notes. They just said, we'll tell you about it. So, But I'm, as I remember, it has something to do with virtualization. Interesting. Um, okay. Yeah. So there, might, so, so, there may so, be so, kind of a reason so, for it. So, right? some, some new hardware level thing yes. that, that, that the 8th gen chips have that the, that the previous ones don't. Precisely. And Windows until now has not depended upon that. Exactly. Well, because, you know, it ran on all the chips. Right. Right. Uh, so okay, you might, so, and that may be why they say we won't promise to support it if you run it on older hardware. They are allowing people to do that, but you won't get this security, new security right. feature. So, right. So it's still unclear uh, on Windows 11 whether I will be eventually forced to move away from Windows 10 or whether Microsoft will eventually take no for an answer. You know, I'm still happily, I'm sitting in front of Windows 7 right now, works great, uh, and they leave me alone. Uh, uh, You Anyway, it's a race between episode 999 and when Windows 10 is no longer in support. Let's just put it that way. That's right. So we'll see, you know. Anyway, okay, so in at least one instance, you know, it looks like they've done something useful. Believe it or not, Microsoft will finally, at long last, be adding default brute force protection into Windows 11's notoriously insecure SMB file and printer sharing user authentication. So it's called the SMB authentication weight rate limiter. What Woo-hoo. a concept. Who would have ever imagined Ooh. you could do that with a computer? Gee, wow. It turns out, Leo, you need an eighth generation <laughs> no. Intel processor no. in order to do rate limiting. You no. can't have it. It's not you that. could not have it on a, 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 a Windows 95 could not have done rate never, limiting. Never it's in a too advanced. Years. Yes. It is an advanced technology. <laughs> we, we it was reverse engineered from uh where is that place where the UFOs are all seen? Yeah, uh, Area 51. Yeah. Uh, yeah it came out yeah. of Area 51. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They said, okay, we don't know. We're unable to crack these alien yeah. computers because they works. won't let us yeah. They won't let us keep guessing passwords. <laughs> they slow us down. Huh. Isn't it too bad we can't put that into Windows? We'll have to wait till Intel's eighth generation processors. Anyway, we finally have it. It's currently being tested by Insider Builds. As its name suggests, this new advanced feature from the aliens will significantly rate lift rate limit brute force attacks against a Windows 11 SMB service. So, anyone who either deliberately or inadvertently exposes their SMB services on port 445 to the public internet as so many people seem unable to keep from doing, they will receive a modicum of protection. With the release of Windows 11 Insider Preview Build 25206 Dev Channel today, the SMB server service now incorporates a two-second 
default delay. That's what the aliens use, Leo, so they didn't want to change anything because that might have broken something. There might be some magic there. It uses a two-second default delay after each failed inbound NTLM authentication attempt. This means that if an attacker previously sent, for example, 300 brute force attempts per second from a client for five minutes, thus 90,000 username and password guesses, now the same number of attempts would take 50 hours rather than five minutes. Somewhat sad to be celebrating such a simple measure that could have been implemented any time in the last 20 years, but better late than never. Uh, also, as I mentioned, two senators, two U.S. senators, uh, Rob Portman, who is an Ohio Republican, and Gary Peters, a Michigan Democrat, introduced a bill last Thursday in a bid to strengthen the security of open source software. Together, they co-sponsored the bipartisan, and I love this one, it's Securing Open, so- Securing open Source Software Act. And when I looked at it, I realized it was the SOS Software Act. So, Securing Open Source Software Act. The goal is to help protect federal and critical infrastructure systems by strengthening the security of open source software. And what do you think got their attention? Yep, the legislation comes after a hearing convened by Portman and Peters on the Log4J incident Uh at the beginning of the year. And it would direct our favorite agency, CISA, to help ensure that open source software is used safely and securely by the federal government, critical infrastructure, and others. Now, how they actually do that uh, remains to be seen. The SOS Software Act directs CISA to develop a risk framework, because, you know, if you're going to be a bureaucrat, you got to have a framework, a risk framework to evaluate how open source code is used by the federal government. Apparently, they don't know now. CISA, oh, we're going to have a, frame, a risk framework to evaluate how open source software code is used by the federal government. CISA would evaluate how the same framework could be voluntarily used by critical infrastructure owners and operators. This will identify ways to mitigate risks in systems that use open source software. The legislation also requires CISA to hire professionals with experience, you're going to get some money, experience developing open source software to ensure that government and the community work hand in hand and prepare to address incidents like the Log4J vulnerability. Yeah, let's, let's prepare. Additionally, the legislation requires the Office for Management and Budget to issue guidance to federal agencies wow, on the secure usage of open source software and establishes a software security subcommittee on the CISA Cybersecurity Advisory Committee. So the CISA Cybersecurity Advisory Committee will have a software security subcommittee that is used by the OMB or something. <laughs> so good and luck. I have a healthy skepticism of bureaucracy and legislators. It's unclear to me that they will ever get anything right. But, you know, if the federal government wants to hire a bunch of open source software folks who have been working up till now for free to help in any way they can, then seems like it could, you know, it could be good. It could help. Um, 
Recall that we talked a couple of weeks ago about the Albanian government's unexpectedly strong reaction to Iran's cyber attack on their infrastructure due to Iran being upset with Albania for providing sanctuary to a group of disaffected Iranians. That was the MEK group. Albania closed Iran's embassy and ejected Iran's ambassadors from the country. We believed, without many facts to back it up, that Iran had been maintaining a presence inside of Albania's government networks for quite some time before the attack. That meant that when Iran's rulers said, let them have it, Iran's cyber warfare people simply had to flip a switch. Well, now, last week, some new information has come to light. The CISA and FBI said last Wednesday that, atta- that hackers connected to Iran's military spent 14 months inside the networks of the Albanian government prior to launching the ransomware attack that caused widespread damage in July. The FBI did not specify which Iranian hacking group was behind the incident, but explained that in their investigation, they found the hackers exploited an Internet-facing Microsoft SharePoint through a well-known and long-since-repaired vulnerability, CVE 2019-0604. That CVE has been classified by cybersecurity experts as one of the most exploited bugs throughout 2020, having been abused by both nation-states and ransomware groups. According to the alert, the hackers were able to maintain continuous access to the network for more than a year, frequently stealing emails throughout 2021. By May of 2022, the actors began moving laterally and examining the network, performing wider credential theft across Albanian government networks. This all preceded the July cyber attack that crippled the country's government. The FBI confirmed reports from from Reuters and researchers that the attacks were launched due to Albania's involvement with the group known as MEK. Albania, as we as we talked about when we talked about this a couple weeks ago, has allowed about three thousand members of the group to settle near Duras, the country's main port. The agency said that in July of 2022, the hackers, quote, launched ransomware on the networks, leaving an anti MEK message on desktops. So we have a perfect example of a while why Albania should have updated their instance of SharePoint shortly after patches for the vulnerability were made available and b why having passive intrusion detection present waiting and watching inside networks can no longer be considered a luxury. We know that try as we might, real-world security is imperfect, and the bad guys only need to find a single imperfection. And one of those bits of imperfection might take the form of a single well-meaning employee. So it's most likely that the bad guys will eventually succeed if they are trying hard enough. Therefore, Any truly effective and secure solution must assume that a compromise will occur sooner or later.
That being the case, immediate detection of such an intrusion is every bit as critical as attempting to keep the bad guys out in the first place. And the entire government of Albania learned the lesson of not having having done either of those two things. They didn't patch SharePoint when it was fixed, and they were completely unaware that they were hosting Iranian intruder, intruders in their networks for 14 months. Talk about an advanced persistent threat. Okay, um, a piece of closing the loop feedback from a listener and someone I know pretty well from the GRC news groups. After hearing last week's discussion of the Uber attack, which was effective even in the presence of multi-factor authentication, a well-known contributor to our news groups posted his thoughts into the Security Now news group, which is one of the many that we have at news.grc.com. His handle in the groups is Ferrix, F-E-R-R-I-X, and his real-world name is Greg. I was aware last week that something didn't feel right about my take on the multi-factor authentication attack. Some people tweeted that it was likely an MFA fatigue attack, and I think that they and Greg are correct. So here's how Greg, who, by the way, works in MFA, multi-factor authentication, professionally, explained what happened with the Uber contractor. He wrote, When reading about the Uber hack, Steve assumed some details about the MFA that led his discussion slightly astray. I work in providing MFA services for my day job, so I know a bit more pedantic detail than the average bear. If the MFA in question was a time-based one-time password, OTP, as Steve said, then what he said about brute-forcing codes would have also been correct. An attacker would have, ha- would have, in theory, brute force logon attempts with code 000, 0001, 0002, etc., until matching the correct six digits. It would have been an entirely loud attack. I'm sorry. It would have been an extremely loud attack since there's a pretty limited time to log in with a current code before it moves out of the window. But that's not what happened here. He wrote, Uber is using push notification MFA, like what Okta and Duo do. The user, or attacker, tries to authenticate to some resource X. The MFA provider pushes a question to its app on the user's phone. Do you want to log into X? With an approve button. The simple theory here is the attacker doesn't have the user's phone, There's no real way to attack the secure channel between the MFA provider and its app. And if the attacker repeatedly tries to log in, the user's phone would blow up with loads of spurious push requests to approve, which is very noticeable. The security model breaks either when users are naive or attackers are clever in particular ways. A naive user might approve an attacker's push by rote, even without thinking about it. Or they might see the repeated attack push requests as, well, it looks like something important is trying to run on X, I better approve it, and thus be tricked. A clever attacker would schedule their attack slowly, 
and at opportune moments where the real user might be plausibly trying to log into the resource, such as the beginning of the workday or after lunch. There's a normal, he said, background radiation, using my term deliberately, he put it in quotes, of false positive push requests that these complex systems generate as various things try to sign in to other things. So it's very reasonable that a user might not realize that they're under attack, and they might tap accept. This is, he says, parens as far as I can tell, what happened to the Uber external staffer. He says, now let's talk about the limitation, I'm sorry, about the mitigation Uber has turned on to improve their security posture, often called verified push. The resource logon page now shows a short challenge number or a word. The smartphone app now says logging into X, click the matching challenge, then shows four or five multiple choice buttons. Now it's not possible for the user to blindly approve anymore. They must select the button that matches the challenge which they only know if they're actually looking at the, at the X login page. Else, the attacker would also have to communicate the correct challenge to the user in some out-of-bound way, which is a more difficult attack model. He finishes saying, orthogonally, please note that the above discussion does not contemplate man-in-the-middle attacks between a real user trying to log in and the resource X they're trying to access. In that attack, the attacker can await the session to be validated, then steal the session to do their bidding. To mitigate that threat, the system would need to use a phishing-resistant auth solution, such as a properly implemented FIDO2 or, notionally, Squirrel. So, Greg, thank you for the clarification. I think he's probably exactly right. Yeah, that makes sense. Yep. Yep, we actually and, heard that with early earlier lapses uh, attacks that they were using as authentication yes. fatigue. Yeah, yes, known as MFA uh, multi-factor authentication fatigue, where the user just finds finally says, "Okay, fine," and you know lets the bad guy in. Okay, briefly, I'm now on book eight of the Silver Ships, and all I can say is that anyone who enjoys science fiction stories has many wonderful, original, and different stories waiting for them. Each book places our characters, whom we get to know quite well, in different, wonderful, and interesting situations. As is evident from the fact that I'm already halfway through book eight, I'm having quite a difficult time putting them down. And despite the fact that I've admittedly fallen head over heels for this fabulous 24-novel science fiction book series, Work on Spinrite is really coming along. I've been fixing every cosmetic thing that I can find for a while now, and I have one last known cosmetic thing to fix. It involves the mapping of Spinrite's now huge 16 megabyte data transfer blocks to one of Spinrite's screens, its so-called graphic status display, which is a, you know, a grid that represents the the aerial storage of the of the media being tested originally a single transfer block might have occupied more than one character cell in the graphic status display i remember that, that floppy disks would, would do that 
So that used to be the case. I removed the logic for for man for managing that cross cell mapping because it simplified and sped up Spinrite's inner loop, and nothing matters more than speed. But that but and and since drives were so huge this th- th- these days, there's no way that that the number of data transfer blocks on the drive would not be way more than the number of cells in the graphic status display. So I removed the logic for that and sped things up. But that also meant that for the first time on very small drives, since Spinrite's new data transfer blocks are so large, and I'll be allocating a minimum of one transfer block per text cell on, on the graphic status display, not all of the GSD screen might be used on very small drives. I've ran across this because I've got a 100 megabyte virtual drive in VirtualBox where I do some of the testing, and it, it went, whoops, you know, visually. Anyway, so I'm fixing the case where that might happen, and I expect I'll finish that work tonight. At that point, I won't know that Spinrite is not finished, but neither will I know that it is. So the last thing I will do before I turn the GRC Newsgroup's gang loose on Spinrite's first fully functional alpha release will be to simulate various forms of actual data corruption, then carefully watch it always do the right thing, putting individually recovered sectors back into the right place. If anything there doesn't work, I'll fix it. Then Spinrite will be ready for the group's final external testing. And Leo, I'm ready for some final external water. Ah, this can be arranged. We have people who will bring you uh, dihydrous (laughs) oxide in a special container designed to retain mm. all the CO2 goodness. But first, Dorada, yes, you're, that's who's bringing you this portion of security now. Is your organization finding it difficult to achieve continuous compliance as it quickly grows and scales? Is manual evidence collection slowing your team down? As G2's highest rated cloud compliance software, Dorada streamlines your SOC 2, your ISO 27001, your PCI DSS, your GDPR, your HIPAA, and other compliance frameworks and provides 24-hour continuous control monitoring so you focus on scaling securely. With a suite of more than 75 integrations, Drata easily integrates with your tech stack through applications like AWS, Azure, GitHub, Okta, and Cloudflare. Countless security professionals from companies including Lemonade, Notion, and Bamboo HR have shared how crucial it has been to have Drata as a trusted partner in the compliance process. Their deep native integrations provide instant visibility into a security program and continuous monitoring to ensure compliance is always met. Drata allows companies to see all their controls, to easily map them to compliance frameworks so you'll gain immediate insight into framework overlap. Companies can start building a solid security posture from day one with Drata, achieve and maintain compliance as your business scales, and expand their security assurance efforts using the Drata platform. Drata's automated dynamic policy templates support companies new to compliance and help alleviate hours of manual labor. Their integrated security awareness training program and automated reminders ensure smooth employee onboarding. And they're the only player in the industry to build on a private database architecture from day one. 
meaning your data can never be accessed by anyone outside your organization. All customers receive a team of compliance experts, including a designated customer success manager. In addition, they have a team of former auditors who have conducted 500-plus audits and are available for support and counsel. So your success is their success. With a consistent meeting cadence, they keep you on track and ensure there are no surprises or barriers. Plus, your pre-audit calls ensure you're set up for success when your audits begin. Drata is personally backed by SVCI. That's a syndicate of CISO angel investors from some of the world's most influential companies. Say goodbye to manual evidence collection and hello to automated compliance by visiting drata.com slash twit. That's D-R-A-T-A dot com slash twit. Drata. Bringing automation to compliance at Drata speed. Thank you, Drata, for support and security now. And I apologize for... Getting your name wrong at first. Oh, I got through that. Drata. <laughs> Drata. <laughs> All right. Now it's time to talk about the subject of the day, Mr. Gibson. So I brought us all some bad news. Oh, no. A couple of weeks ago. Yes. With the, uh, the rise of fishing as a service. <sighs> but, you know, forewarned is forearmed, right? Uh, I've got some more bad news for us this oh, week. No. <laughs> One of the definitions of the word politics is the debate or conflict among individuals or parties having or holding or ha- having or hoping to achieve power. Yeah. Uh, it is in that sense of politics that I titled today's podcast Darknet Politics. Last week's leak of today's preeminent LockBit 3.0 ransomware led to some very interesting discussion and conjecture by the industry's ransomware-watching security researchers. After the fall of Conti, which we covered, uh, remember all that crazy Costa Rica government nonsense? LockBit 3.0 has risen to become the number one ransomware group in the ransomware industry. And I hate using that term, but there it is, industry. Um, and they've been making something of a splash in the underground. Uh, they recently offered, get a load of this, $1,000 to anyone who would permanently tattoo their group's logo on their body. Oh, no. They had a number of takers. Oh, no. Until they, and I saw a photo of one, until they terminated the offer. Yeah. So, well, and Leo, we know where you have a tattoo yes, of a logo. Of, so. of the logo of a company near and dear, yes. <laughs> so today, the group's operations are so extensive that LockBit's victim count some weeks has been greater than all the other ransomware families combined. Ever since Conti's leaks, which marked the beginning of Conti's end, and the curious wind-down involving the Costa Rican government that we covered, LockBit has taken over the ransomware throne. Although business, and again, if you can call it that, I hate doing so, although business has been booming for the LockBit 3.0 group, things have recently shaken up a bit by a little-known threat actor who claims that his group was able to compromise LockBit's servers to obtain and leak the builder and keygen modules, essentially all of the heart of the group's code. It seems that within this odd underworld, it's not possible to get too big or someone 
a rival or an insider will take you down. Since this is somewhat reminiscent of the leaks which occurred and triggered Conti's downfall, it raises the question whether this may be the beginning of the end also for Lockbit as well. We'll see. Okay, so a threat actor going by the name Ali Kwasiji, which was a Twitter account with no reputation, which was apparently created just to host this leak declaration announcement, claims to have hacked several of LockBit's servers and was able to obtain the LockBit 3.0 builder and the keys generator. Researchers at CyberInt grabbed and analyzed the leaked code and declared it to be real and complete. They said, quote, looking at the published files, we could find the builder and key generator modules. The first of them build several executables that perform the encryption and loading phases of LockBit's ransomware attack flow along with ransom note creation. Well, the record, which is a publication of Recorded Future, often does a great job when things like this happen of pulling things together and polling security researchers. In this instance, I thought that some of what they reported was really quite interesting. So in what follows, I've merged some of the records reporting with my own interpretation and commentary. The leak of the LockBit 3.0 ransomware encryptor was announced on Wednesday by security researcher. Now, we would pronounce his name or his handle export, but it's, you know, numeral three XP numeral zero RT. So, you know, in leap speak, anyway, export uh, announced this. Several experts and researchers confirmed to the record that the builder works and allows anyone to create their own ransomware. There's the phrase of the week, allows anyone to create their own ransomware. In a message shared by export, Someone allegedly connected to LockBit addressed the issue, attributing the leak to a disgruntled affiliate and dismissing the idea that what was stolen could be used by others to replicate what the ransomware group does. Of course, you know, he would hope that's true. So this LockBit representative was quoted, quote, an affiliate program is not a locker. It is a software package, and most importantly, an impeccable reputation. Oh, give me a break. That no one... (laughs) What is this guy smoking? (laughs) That no one can tarnish. No matter what what software leaks occur, few people will pay to... Sorry, few people will agree to pay randomly to a pen tester without a reputation hoping for a successful decryption and deletion of stolen data. Now, as I said, I don't know what this LockBit representative has been smoking, but no one ever wants to pay anything to any criminal who has breached their network. Only the trust, most trustworthy criminals. That's right. Only the criminals with a great reputation. And, wait, what? And the, re- the, the reputations of underground criminals has little bearing on whether they get paid. They get paid if there's no alternative, period. Okay, but the records reporting noted that several cybersecurity experts expressed significant concern 
about that very prospect. MSISOFT's threat analyst, Brett Callow, compared the situation to last year's leak of the builder for the Babook locker ransomware. Brett said, <coughs> quote, <coughs> excuse me, as was the case when Babook's loader leaked, we may well see other threat actors use lock bits, which would obviously complicate attribution. Adding to what Brett said, Huntress senior security researcher John Hammonds said, less skilled adversaries gravitated to the Babook ransomware tool because it was simple to customize and use. Unfortunately, it wasn't the same quality as this one. And Recorded Future's own ransom expert, Alan Liska, said his team has identified more than 150 new, in quotes, ransomware groups just this year. Most of them are using stolen Conti or Revil code. Allen said, quote, at this time last year, Recorded Future was collecting from about 45 active DLSs. That, that's short for dedicated leak sites. Today, that's more than 100. He said there is a real proliferation of ransomware groups, most using leaked stolen code from other ransomware groups. This is the same reason why the emergence of FAS, you know, phishing as a service, as I was talking about, is so disturbing. <clears throat> the emergence of turnkey services allows who are not those who are not skilled enough to assemble the required infrastructure to no longer need to. It, you know, it's been done for them in return for a piece of their action. Dick O'Brien, the principal intelligence analyst for Symantec's Threat Hunter team, said it's a near certainty that we will see other attackers reuse LockBit's source code. According to O'Brien, LockBit's success is partly due to the fact that it has a very effective malware payload. Dick said that other ransomware operators could replace their payloads with rebranded variants of LockBit, and you could see some aspirant groups use this to launch their own ransomware operations. <clears throat> I have to <coughs> excuse me for a second. I've run out of ads, so <laughs> yeah, we we can ask our editor to ex these, uh, remove that. These guys are so grandiose; it's so. Amazing. I know, I know. No one is going to use our stolen oh. stuff because they're not us, oh. and it's only we are. You know, can bless this with our reputation. It's like again, what? Oh, they're awful. Anyway. Researchers have linked more than 1,029 attacks to LockBit since the group began its operation in 2019. The group was considered a marginal player until just last year when it launched LockBit 2.0, a new version of its initial ransomware-as-a-service platform. The group revamped again, launching LockBit 3.0 this past summer, and quickly supplanted Conti as the most prolific criminal organization. The gang had at least 68 victims just last month, 68 victims in August, so more than two a day on average, including a crippling attack on a hospital about an hour southeast of Paris that disrupted its medical imaging, patient admissions, and other services. You know, as we've seen. 
The cybersecurity firm Dragos attributes about one-third of ransomware attacks targeting industrial systems in the second quarter of this year to LockBit. And Huntress Labs' John Hammond explained that the latest edition of LockBit had new features and functionality to encrypt files faster than ever before. He said the leak of the builder software commoditizes the ability to configure, customize, and ultimately generate the executables to both encrypt and decrypt files. I have it just for side interest, a, a slide showing the relative distribution by number of attacks of of ransomware. And LockBit is out in first place with Conti in second. And then there's a like a drop by two thirds for the rest of them. There are also also RANs that we've we've talked about from time to time. <clears throat> Um, in his discussion with the record, indicating a screenshot of the leaked configuration file, Hammond said, anyone with this utility can start a full-fledged ransomware operation. That is so customizable, he said. Note how the ransom note can be completely changed. One small upside of the leak may be that security experts now have it too. So they're able to analyze and explore this builder software and potentially garner new threat intelligence that could thwart ransomware operations. At a minimum, the leak gives cybersecurity experts greater insight into the inner workings of LockBit, with the message from LockBit indicating that they have contracted developers and that they suffer, as well, from insider leaks. Aw. Record- <laughs> oh, I know. Aww. Poor babies. Poor babies. Recorded Futures' Alan Liska said the leak could be a sign of disgruntled factions within the LockBit group. He said, quote, the large RAAS groups, you know, ransomware as a service groups, are notorious for paying their developers, IABs, those are the initial access brokers, remember, who find the way in and sell their access, and other support staff very poorly. So it's not necessarily a surprise when someone retaliates. John told the record that after the Conti leaks were made freely available, the Conti ransomware builder, quote, gained mass adoption from other threat actor groups wanting to quickly and easily spin up their own ransomware operations. Money is the real motive. And when a tool like this is made available, he said, it enables anyone to run the racket. One thing to note is that though it is customizable, the encryptor still changes the victim wallpaper to say lock bit black. And that cannot easily be changed. More skilled operators may attempt to change that or lower tier and less capable groups may prefer to have the legitimacy of looking like a lock bit attack. The bottom line on all this, driven by the promise of easy money, was um, what was once a somewhat blessedly high-level and high-end form of devastating attack is rapidly moving down into and becoming a commodity available to far less capable criminals to use. And again, in retrospect, this was inevitable. The lack of true bulletproof enterprise cybersecurity, which enables an environment 
of porous security with the emergence of cryptocurrency, which solved the extortion payment problem, together has made massively profitable cyber extortion feasible like never before. And now the last tools required to make the perpetration of these cyber crimes trivial are falling into the hands of the script kitties. God help us. Yeah. Well, I well, you know, you can hope that they eat each other alive, you know, that they just <laughs> Yeah. You know, just keep fighting and infighting and all that stuff. But good luck. And we did yeah. see that the that the sanctions against Russia are what killed Conti because they aligned themselves powerfully with the Russian government and with with Russia, right. and no one was able or willing to pay them right. because they were Russian, and right. uh, you know it, they were now sanctioned. Yeah, what a story! Golly, golly! Uh, it's it's an interesting world we live in, and this show shows us in many ways how, how more and more interesting it gets with all these. And Leo, what's so sad is think interests. of all the resources being expended mm. to fight this. Oh, you I know? know. Oh, I know. I mean, it's yeah. guaranteed employment for anybody yeah, who's absolutely. interested in cyber in cybersecurity. Yeah, that's absolutely, for sure. yeah. Uh, all right, we do this every uh, every Tuesday, and uh, if you're not completely dejected, I hope you'll come back again and do it again with us. Uh, Tuesdays, 11 a.m. Pacific. I'm sorry, 1:30 p.m. Pacific, 4:30 Eastern, 20:30 UTC. Uh, you right after Mac Break Weekly, you can watch us do it at live.twit.tv, uh, or uh, you know uh, after the fact on a podcast. Steve's got copies. Actually, he's two unique uh, copies at his website grc.com he's got the 16 kilobit audio for the bandwidth impaired and he has the uh, transcriptions written by elaine ferris so you can read as you listen or use them to search or just read them standalone get all the content that way he also has 64 kilobit audio we do too at twit.tv slash sn or on youtube there's a dedicated channel or or you can subscribe in your favorite podcast player if you don't like the ads it's okay. I understand. Uh, you can get an ad-free version of this show by joining Club Twit. Either two ninety nine a month for just this show, or a little bit more, seven bucks a month, and you get all the shows ad-free. You get shows that we don't actually put out in public, like Hands on Mac with Micah and uh, Hands on Windows with Paul Therod, and the Untitled Linux Show with Jonathan Bennett and Stacy's Book Club and the Giz Fizz. We use it to launch shows. It's a really great platform for that. Like. That's where we launched this week in space, actually. Um, at seven bucks a month, ad free versions of all the shows, access to our great Club Twit Discord for chats uh, all the time, uh, and all sorts of other fun stuff, special group events, and so forth, plus the Twit Plus feed and all of that at twit.tv slash club twit. Thank you in advance to all of our members. It really makes a big difference. It helps us out uh, quite a bit. Uh, Let's see. I guess uh, that means it's time to adjourn this session of Security Now. Uh, but we will be back next Tuesday with Steve and company. Thank you, Steve. Righto. See you then, buddy. Bye. Don't miss All About Android every week. We talk about the latest news, hardware, apps, and now all the developer goodness happening in the Android ecosystem. I'm Jason Howell, also joined by Ron Richards, Florence Ion, and our newest co-host on the panel, Wen Tudao, who brings her developer chops. 
really great stuff. We also invite people from all over the Android ecosystem to talk about this mobile platform we love so much. Join us every Tuesday, all about Android on twit.tv. Security now.